Welcome to Guidepost, the cutting-edge podcast series produced by the CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, Executive Editor of the CRISPR Journal. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, my interview with Bartha Knoppers of McGill University. Guidepost is brought to you by the CRISPR Journal, publishing the latest research, analysis, and opinion in the field of CRISPR biology and genome editing. Cutting-edge science at crisperjournal.com. Canadian lawyer and professor Bartha Knoppers is widely acknowledged as one of the leading authorities on legal and ethical aspects of genetics and genomics research. A professor at McGill University, she recently gave an invited talk at the annual CRISPR meeting in Quebec City, an acknowledgement of the growing importance of ethical debate following the reports in late 2018 of human germline editing and the birth of CRISPR babies. Knoppers was subsequently appointed a member of the International National Academies Commission on the Clinical Use of Human Germline Genome Editing, which will release its findings in 2020. In this interview, Knoppers discusses her journey to the front lines of bioethics and CRISPR. Martha Knoppers, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining me on Guidepost. Good to be here. You are an unusual guest for this uh, podcast series. You're the first uh, fully-fledged bioethicist slash uh, law professor that we've had on the on the show. Um, but there's good reason for that, given all of the intense interest on uh, germline editing and CRISPR babies. And so we'll come to your uh, increasingly active uh, role and interest in that field. Um, tell us first briefly a little bit about your academic background. Just to encourage students not to go directly into what they think will be their professional field, <laughs> do um, study every area that it might possibly interest you before you go into what you think you want to be, so to speak. Yeah. I was in um, surrealist poetry, in particular um, Caribbean African poetry uh, comparative for quite some time wow. before there were a few legal difficulties <laughs> with my professor and switched to law. But I'm still at heart an international comparatist. Wow. You're based at McGill University. Yes. You are a law professor or is it law or ethics? Or... I was a law professor for 23 years at yeah. the University of Montreal yeah. and switched to the Faculty of Medicine at McGill 10 years ago. Yeah. And what has been your interest in human genetics and what have been the main ethical areas of interest that uh, have, have driven your work over, say, the last decade? I came to human genetics in a sort of an odd way through a medical law course where I was given what's called a torts question and also in a criminal law course where there was a bullet left in the body of, of, of a criminal and the question was whether the police could remove it and so on. So there were different legal courses that led me to an interest in areas where there were no answers. In, in other words, where there were either ethical issues, policy issues, or um, emerging uh, scientific advances that the law did not seem at first glance to accommodate any mm. kind of framework for, any answers for. Mm. So my doctorate actually was from the Sorbonne on international comparative medical law. Mm. In terms of human genetics and some of the big issues like cloning, uh, were you involved? or did Yes, you... the doctorate was on reproductive technologies mm. and possible um, issues for physicians, followed by a postdoc on prenatal diagnosis mm. and pre-implantation possible issues for uh, physicians again. So I learned sort of human genetics on the fly. And I must say, 
I attended probably a decade of conferences before I even, you know, understood chromosomes and DNA and yes. and all those long, the names of those long, rare, recessive conditions and so on. But I figured if you don't know the science, you shouldn't be talking about it. Yes, um, yes. So six months ago, uh, CRISPR babies became a, a major international subject with the news from uh, Her Jankwee's work about the birth of germline-edited uh, human embryos, uh, twins. Do you recall what your reaction was when you heard that news? I was not surprised. Huh? I've been looking at countries around the world with different levels of regulation from guidelines to, you know, laws with criminal sanctions to just a simple statute or oversight agencies, such as in the UK. And China had a series of regulations and um, requirements for ethics review and so on. But rather loosely applied, if I can put it yeah. that way. And and knowing the sort of laxity in enforcement, it, once you have a country that seems to have on the book something that monitors or controls or in some way frames emerging biotech, such as CRISPR technologies, if you know that it's not applied or not enforced, this was bound to happen. Right. In the run-up to that announcement uh, over the last two, three years, there mm -hmm. have been multiple reports from various learned societies and organizations <laughs> on uh, germline editing. Uh, more than 60, as we published in a review by Karen Bukowski in 2018. Um, that's an extraordinary amount of scholarship. And I wonder, after all of that work, did anything really stand out in terms of overarching conclusions? It's hard to get your head around so much work when one group in one country says, well, we're this inclined to support germline editing, and another country says, well, we're slightly more or slightly less inclined. What do we gain after all of that work? I think we gain a bit of perspective that we need to sort of reorient how we uh, frame policy. I can quote you from Council of Europe and all kinds of bodies going back to the 1980s on germline, a yeah. bit like human reproductive cloning, which is always a sentence, you know, this should be banned or the human uh, germline should never be touched or modified. And you had these sort of wrote, I should say, uh, statements that kept appearing. However, 2015 was obviously the breakthrough year that led to these 60 reports. Yeah. And the fact that they're all over the place is because we actually didn't have discussion between the 1980 and 2015 because of the very fact that everyone thought, oh, it's been taken care of. It's sort of prohibited everywhere. And that shuts down discussion. Ah. And the fact that you have a breakthrough, all of a sudden they say, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Didn't, didn't we decide something on this? Yeah. And then they create, you know, 60 reports in the period of about two years yeah. full of nuances, but without much direction other than it's not ready yet, yeah. it's not safe yet, it's not effective or efficient yet, it's not of quality yet. And hence, it's difficult from both an ethics and legal and social policy point of view yes. to come down on a technology very precisely when the science itself isn't yet yes. of quality. Within those 60 plus reports, mm -hmm. we're going to come to the new reports, the commissions that you're part of in a minute. But within those, are there one or two that really stand out to you in terms of depth of, of scholarship and erudition? Yes, there's two. There okay. are two. It's the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine of 2017 in the yeah. United States and the Nuffield uh, Report of 2018. Yeah. The National Academy actually honing down on the safety, efficacy, quality issues. And to me, those aren't only scientific issues. For me, those are ethical. You shouldn't introduce a new method, a new advance, some mm. progress in quotes, 
if you haven't got those three nailed down, because mm. those are ethical issues. Why involve human participants mm. if it isn't safe of quality mm. and efficient? Mm. The Nuffield was interesting because it introduced a whole approach about future generations and the welfare of future generations, mm. which is interesting from an international human rights point of view. Plus, it also addressed the fact that we can't ignore that in potential for enhancement, not just germline modification, but enhancement in terms mm. of so-called improvements to intelligence or whatever, had to be kept in mind from the point of view of equity as well. Yeah. In the first half of 2019, let me put it that way, uh, there have been two high-profile calls for a moratorium on germline editing, mm -hmm. one from Lander, Francois Bayliss mm -hmm. and colleagues uh, in Nature, and then more recently um, on the cusp of the American Society for uh, Cell and Gene Therapy Conference, uh, a group of some 60 veterans in the gene therapy space also issued a very similar call. Do you personally support calls from uh, a moratorium, or do you think that's a, a mistake? Um, I think it's a mistake whether the voluntary one of the Lander et al. or yeah. the call for a binding legal moratorium, which it seems to be at first glance something of more of a treaty or a convention, yeah. which is very takes about a decade, as, as you know, to get it through all the different levels and make yeah. sure that countries sign and ratify and so on. In any event, a moratorium, it's an idea, it's an approach. It says to everyone, slow down, let's stop and see what we're doing. Mm. But it creates the illusion that something's being done, that people are actually stopping mm. and thinking and deciding, should we go down this route or not? And it cuts off debate. And perhaps if we hadn't been so prohibitive in the 1980s, we wouldn't have lost so many years and ended up in 2015 saying, where's the, we're in an international vacuum. Yes. And it doesn't seem to have deterred at least one uh, Russian scientist who's emerged in the news just as we're no. recording this interview. The, these calls, from, they're nice. They'll say, oh, that's very good. I'm yeah. glad professionals are worried. And they'll keep on doing what they're doing. Yeah. And you need countries engaged at the highest level. You need actual political momentum um, yes. if you really want to have an effective moratorium. Yes, yes. Now, uh, one reason we're speaking to you is that uh, you are one of the uh, 16 members of a new National Academy commission or committee that's commission. been uh, recently announced, co-chaired by Dane K. Davis, my former PhD supervisor, no relation, and uh, Rick Lifton, the president of Rockefeller University, two spectacularly well-qualified and renowned molecular geneticists. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to be on that commission and what, what is the goal of that uh, group's uh, work over the next 12 months and how is that going to have any more significance or purpose than all of the other commissions and reports that have been issued in the last couple of years? Well, the process of, of selection was quite different from the WHO committee, which is an international committee where there was a call for candidates Mm. And it was filtered through the WHO in its wisdom and in its usual processes in terms of the selection of members. You could even put in your own or someone could put in your candidacy. Yeah. The commission came out of the blue. You get a phone call. And in a way, I was pleased and honored. I mean, you have to be very careful what you say in the next year. You don't want it to reflect or in any way be presumed as part of the commission's work. So you think about your academic freedom. You know, yeah. that's what you study for, to be free, yeah. right? But at the same time, I'm really glad because it fits well with the mandate of the WHO is different. It's on, on ethics and governance. And this one is more on the potential should clinical applications be possible one day, how do we frame it? How do we handle it? What are the conditions that need to be met? Yes. So it's scientific. 
but it's necessarily ethics as well, because as I said earlier, for me, safety, quality, and so on are ethical issues. Yeah. And I don't think we can avoid them. And I don't think WHO can avoid the scientific issues. So yeah. somewhere along the line, there's going to have to be crosstalk between the two. You were asked about that by, by Jennifer Downer here yes. at the uh, CRISPR conference in Quebec City. Um, so you think that there's that would make sense for the two organizations to kind of compare notes or at least give some uh, some crosstalk over the course yes. of the next 12 months? And, and I would like to introduce a different way of looking at things than the traditional legal ethical way. And one is to introduce the issues of, of human rights um, here because they are universal. So it will attract the attention of countries that are interested in equitable access or even maybe rogue countries that see this as a way for creating bioeconomies. But most of all, I'm interested in three rights, the rights of children, yes, future children, the rights uh, to health and the right to science for everyone to benefit from the advances mm. of science. And those three human rights have not been exploited or discussed mm. in this area. They're largely dormant. And maybe we can activate them mm. because if you frame it as a human rights issue, you don't get into the morality of bioethics. Some of them saying that's Western bioethics mm. or law. Oh, that's the common law that mm. we have, you know, Sino or Germanic mm. or whatever law. So you, so you avoid those traditional attacks by raising it to a level mm. where countries have already identified themselves as participating in that debate. Right. Do you think that there are some circumstances where if all of the safety and good clinical options can be um, assessed and your work going forward will hopefully address and maybe even resolve some of those questions, do you think there may be some scenarios in the next 5, 10, 20 years looking forward where germline editing should be allowed or could be allowed? In other words, you don't have anything fundamentally, viscerally against it, like just a blanket, we should absolutely never cross that line. If I had such a position, it would have been taken 40 years ago when IVF first was used and were able to start looking at embryos to see whether they were viable yes. or not. Yes. And people use IVF not only for infertility, but also for genetic conditions. Mm. And so um, that kind of screening of pre-implantation embryos for serious, often incurable or non-treatable mm. conditions We've started that discussion mm. on what it means. Mm. And in 2002, I published a paper where we looked with Dorothy Wirtz, a sociologist, mm -hmm. asking the American Society of Human Genetics, the Iberian Society, the European Society of Human Genetics, what does serious mean to geneticists? Mm. Uh, you know, is it lethal? And there was no consensus among geneticists. Mm. So mm. we're still stuck with that serious filter as already the seemingly only medical mm. slash scientific filter mm. to slow down or speed up germline editing. You've just given a talk this week at the uh, CRISPR 2019 conference in Quebec City, just up the road from your hometown or adopted hometown. What's been your takeaway from, I suspect, interacting with the CRISPR community, 300 plus uh, scientists, uh, including many of the leading figures in the field? What's been your, your initial take following your engagement with this crowd? Well, the excitement is so palpable. It's really Great to meet all these young scientists from so many different countries, mm. and they actually are interested in the ethical, legal, and policy issues, yeah. and from an international point of view. And they know because of the attention that it's attracted that people say, oh, you're in that hmm, technology that's leading to oh, pretty awful applications or potentially eugenic or potentially enhancement. 
And I think that kind of specter, if you like, that they need to prove that it's not only authentic from a scientific point of view, but that it has great uh, human possibilities yeah. in, in medicine and science is a challenge for them. And they did come up to me afterwards and say they wanted or they needed to have some sort of committee yeah. dealing with the social issues where the scientists themselves are involved. Yeah. And that's them. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, Bartha Knoppers, great to meet you. And thank you for your presentation this week. And thanks for joining us on the Guidepost. And best of luck with your National Academy's work going forward. You're welcome.